Welcome to the First Baptist Church Keller Sermon Podcast. Each week we make available sermons from Pastor Keith and our staff on our website, fbckeller.org. And on iTunes, search for First Baptist Church Keller TX in the iTunes Store or in the podcast app on your mobile device. And now with a revival message, Mr. John Moore. I think of the uh, tonight of the uh, uh, visitor that was invited to the service by the Baptist. And the visitor had never been in a Baptist church before. And so they, uh, everybody came in and was seated. And the music uh, announcer said, turn to page 454. And the visitor leaned over to his Baptist friend and said, what does this mean? And the Baptist told his friend, said, we're, we're going to sing a hymn of praise to the Lord. It's on page 54 of the songbook. And he said, okay. So the service progressed along and it came time for the offering. And the ushers began to pass the offering plates back. And, and the visitor, as they got closer, the visitor leaned over to his Baptist friend. And he said, what does this mean? And the Baptist said, well, this is another way we have of worshiping the Lord. We're going to give our tithes and offerings and make gifts to the Lord. And uh, this is another means of worship. And so the visitor said, fine. And then it came time for the preacher to come to the pulpit. And just as I did a moment ago, he took off his watch, put it on the, uh, the uh, stand here. And the visitor leaned over to his Baptist friend and he said, what does this mean? And the Baptist said, absolutely nothing. <laughs> I'll try to be a little more conscious of the time tonight, but I'm still glad you're here. And I hope by the time we get through, you'll still be glad you were here. Well, <clears throat> I, we were about three weeks ago. My wife and I took a belated uh, summer vacation. I know it wasn't summer. It was the first week of October. It was the first chance we had to get away, and we love to go to the mountains, particularly as we go west. And as we travel, were traveling and we uh, got to about Tex Line, which is right the uh, state line between Texas and New Mexico, we began to see mountains in the distance. And uh, from a distance, they look like they're all right there together. But uh, as it turns out, if you've been that way, you know this to be true. That once you get to where the mountains are, you find that they're not all there together at all. But they're separated sometimes by miles, sometimes by many miles. And just as, we've, as has happened to every trip we've taken, it reminded me of my seminary days at Southwestern Seminary. Remind me of uh, what my Old Testament professor told us as a class one day. He was talking about the prophecies of the Old Testament prophets. And he said when they were given visions of the future, it was much like the mountains. They all seemed to be right there together. But when it turned out when the visions were fulfilled, they weren't, didn't happen all at the same time. Sometimes there was a good distance between each prophecy's fulfillment, sometimes a, a great distance. And that was true of the, the prophet Isaiah. We looked at Isaiah last night. We will not be there tonight, but I do mention him because 
He's the most prominent, the best recognized of all the Old Testament prophets, primarily because he was the prophet of redemption. But in Isaiah 35, Isaiah began to predict, he prophesied about uh, the Messiah and the coming of the Messiah. And one of the things he mentioned when Jesus come, came, he would bring the highway of holiness. And I was fascinated with that, the highway of holiness. And I began to fan the pages of the New Testament to look, to see about the fulfillment of this prophecy, the highway of holiness. And finally, I came to the book of Colossians, the little letter of Colossians. We'll be there tonight, chapter three. I'm not going to read the passage because it's a lengthy passage of scripture. But I, the title of tonight's message is exactly that, The Highway of Holiness. And in my humble but accurate opinion, <laughs> one of the greatest needs today is for people, everyday ordinary people, seeing Christians walking the highway of holiness. If we're going to do that, I invite you to join me tonight and at least, at least take a temporarily uh, visual look, a mental look at that highway and notice that the first step along that highway is to accentuate the divine vision. Accentuate the divine vision. Look at verse 1, chapter 3, Colossians. Therefore, if you have been raised up with Christ, keep seeking the things above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. We talked last night temporarily about the peculiarity of preachers. Here's another one of my peculiarities. There's another word. Without even trying, without even thinking about it, when I run across that word, therefore, there's a question I always have to ask myself. What's that therefore, therefore? That's just a cute little reminder that you don't start understanding with verse one, but it refers to something the writer has already stated and it's back in chapter two in verse 20. He said, if you have died with Christ, the Bible tells us when we put our faith in Jesus Christ, we're joined to him and we're joined in his death. And not only are we joined in his death, but chapter three, verse one, it says that we're joined in his resurrection. If you have been raised with Christ. And then he gives us two clear commandments, not choices, commandments. And the first is this. We are to transfer our attention from the earthly to the eternal. Listen to it again in verse one and two. Therefore, if you've been raised up with Christ, keep seeking the things above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on the things above, not on the things that are on earth. I also mentioned last night that some of you look so old you apparently are as old as I am. 
And if you are old, as old as I am, uh, you may have noticed something about people of our age. We have a tendency uh, to think about the undertaker. <laughs> Hello. Boy, I'm telling you, I'm hurting today. I've got my rheumatiz is really telling on me. And I'm afraid, boy, I heard somebody had that same pain in six weeks they were dead. <laughs> boy, I'm, I'm telling you, I'm worried. Let me tell you something, folks. You who are our age, you they call senior citizens. It's time we quit worrying about the undertaker and started thinking about the upper taker. Hello, I can hear you breathing out there. It's time we quit worrying about the undertaker and started concentrating on the upper taker. In other words, we need to transfer our attention from the earthly to the eternal. And not only do we need to transfer our attention from the earthly to the eternal, we need to transfer our affection from ourself to our Savior. Look at verse 3. For you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. Listen to me, folks. One of these days, and for some of us, it's less days than others, the Lord's going to come. I said the Lord's going to come. And he's going to take us up with him. And the Bible says... When he does, there we will ever be with the Lord. Get your mind off of the earthly to the eternal. Get your mind off your problems to the problem solver. Ralph Waldo Emerson, the famous uh, uh, spokesman, used to say that, uh, that he was approached by a man on the street one time who just totally walked up to him, perfect stranger, and said, uh, he, he recognized Mr. Emerson. He said, they tell me the world's coming to an end. And Emerson shot back without even thinking. He said, never mind, we can do without it. <laughs> and that's true to those of us who know the Lord. The highway of holiness needs to change our way of thinking. And by the way, the Bible calls that repentance to change our way of thinking, to think of the earthly instead of the eternal, to have affection for our, not ourself, but the Savior. And then finally, there's a second step to this walk, to walking the highway of holiness, not only to accentuate the divine vision, but to assimilate the divine instruction. Look at verse four. In verse four, the apostle writes, when Christ who is our life is revealed, then you also will be revealed with him in glory. Therefore, there's that word again. Therefore, consider the members of your earthly body as dead. Now, if you're following along from the older version, the King James translation, I believe the translation says, mortify your members which are upon the earth. And uh, it's an interesting word there, mortify. The, the Greek word translated there, mortify, literally means to put to death. It's the same word from which we get our word mortician. So the question is, whose members are these that we're supposed to put to death? Now, Brother Keith, I've never yet been with a pastor who was not willing to volunteer a couple of his members. 
But unfortunately, that's not what the verse means. We're to mortify the members of our body which are upon the earth. And again, that, that word mortify means to kill or to put away. And in the remainder of verse 5, the entirety of verse 5 are listed some sensual sins that belong to the old way of life that need to be put to death. There'll be no place for that in heaven. Hello? There'll be no place for it in heaven. And it may interest you to know that every one of these sins that he mentions in verse 5 that are be, to be put away or to be put to death have to do with sensual sins or sexual sins. Does that surprise you? Shouldn't. The more things change, the more they stay the same. And the people in the first century struggle with the same problems that you and I struggle with. Can't sell anything nowadays without sex appeal, without the sexual aspect up to it. But the apostle reminds us there's going to be no place for that in heaven. And the time to deal with it, don't wait till Jesus comes for you, deal with it now. And then he deals with it one by one in verse 5. The first word, he, first one he says is, is put to death immorality. It's just a general term of any kind of sexual misconduct. The second thing he mentions there is impurity. It's deviant sexual acts. Again, this shouldn't find, surprise you because many of these people that were converted in these early churches were converted out of ancient religions where they actually practiced their religions by practicing sexual acts with priests and priestesses of the so-called churches of the so-called religions. Then the third thing he says is passion. These are uncontrolled sexual urges. The fourth he mentions is evil desires. Again, if you're reading from the King James translation, it says evil concupiscence. Boy, with a name like that, you know it's sin, right? <laughs> evil concupiscence. That simply means uh, forbidden sexual acts. And then the last thing in verse 5, notice this. It seems strange. It seems out of place. It seems out of context because he said, put away, put to death, greed. At least it seems to be out of context until you think about it a little deeper. Sociologists and psychologists have just recently discovered in their studies that many people, listen to me, many people who would never practice such acts, such sins, will at the same time sit down and watch a television show or more privately, more secretly, get on the internet where nobody else knows they are and they actually enter in vicariously into the lives of the actors and the actresses. Men and women, young and old, who would never themselves practice such things will enter into to that vicariously. And listen to me, we have to be reminded that there will be no place for that in heaven. 
I said, there'll be no place for that in heaven. And the time to deal with that is not to wait till Jesus comes for you, but to deal with that right now. Now, I can almost hear the sigh of relief. He missed me tonight. I'm beyond that. I'm more spiritually mature than that. Well, if the apostle missed you with verse 5, let's try verse 8. <laughs> but now you also put these all aside. And then in verses 8 and 9, whereas in verse 5 he dealt with sensual sins... In verses 8 and 9, he deals with sins of the Spirit. And if you remember anything about the ministry of Jesus, he was always much more severe with those who had sins of the Spirit than those who had problems with sins of the flesh. Do you remember the woman caught in the very act of adultery? Jesus refused to condemn her. Now, he didn't condone her sin. When all of her accusers had left and he told them, said, let the first one without sin throw a stone. And they thought through it and they set down their stones and walked away. And Jesus said this to the woman, go and sin no more. He didn't condone her sin, but he had mercy on her. He had compassion for her. Then on the other hand, think about how he dealt with the Pharisees and those hypocrites, those who thought they were better than anybody else. He had nice things to say about them like hypocrites, snakes in the grass. You're like, uh, uh, you're like coffins that are all bright and shiny on the outside, but inside you're filled with death. And it behooves me to say and you to hear and understand that the sins that are listed in verse 8 are going to be just as out of order in heaven as the sins listed in verse 5. And what are they? First of all, anger. And that's not an amen. That's an uh-oh. Put to death anger. The word literally means always being mad about something. Maybe something one hour or something else the next hour or the next day. Just always being angry. There's no, going to be no place for that in heaven. The time to deal with it is now. Put it away from you now. Put it to death now. The second thing he mentions is wrath. That's an outburst of anger. When I was a teenager, we used to call it flipping your wig or blowing your top. I don't know what the kids call it now. I'm sure they have a euphemism that, uh, that covers it. But in any case, it's a sudden outburst of anger. That's uh, wrath. Then the third thing in verse 8 is malice. That's holding grudges. I've got a preacher friend that calls it spiritual IOUs. Okay, you got me this time. I don't get mad. I get back. I pay back. Again, that's going to be just as out of place in heaven as any of the sexual sins. 
holding grudges. And then the fourth thing in verse 8, slander. That's just criticism. Always finding something wrong about somebody else. Regardless of what the situation is, regardless of what the subject is, regardless who the person is, always finding something to nitpick, always finding something to criticize. And then something tragically that's known as abusive speech or profanity or barnyard language. Obviously, that's going to be out of place in heaven. And then in verse 9, he mentions something that's a horrific it's particular, particularly horrific, that, easy for me to say, for us in this generation because lying tragically has come to be known as ministerially speaking. Isn't that desperately sad? That the synonym for lying is ministerially speaking. Preacher, how many people did you have in church today? Oh, we had about a thousand. Oh, really? I heard it was 500. Ministerially speaking. That's going to be out of place in heaven. The time to deal with that now, the time to put it away is now. Over in the Old Testament, you may remember that once the promised land was conquered, that Joshua told each tribe to go in. The Lord told Joshua and Joshua told the people to go in and run out the enemies from the land and secure the land. Did they do that? Shake your head no. Not a single tribe did what they were commanded to do. Every single tribe allowed the foreigners to remain in the land. And strangely enough, and interestingly enough, without exception, every one of those tribes came back to Joshua wanting more land. You know what Joshua's response was? You've got plenty of land. Cut down the forest and run the aliens out of there and you'll have plenty of room. The point is simply this for us folks, that before we can put the, on the new man in Christ, we have to put off the old man that we were before we were in Christ. But finally, there's another step. There's a final step in walking the highway of holiness. Not only to accentuate the divine vision and assimilate the divine instruction, but also to appropriate the divine provision. And I'm so excited about explaining this to you tonight because some years ago, the Lord showed me something about this passage of Scripture that blessed my life immeasurably. And I want to share it with you tonight. And my prayer is that God will penetrate your heart and your mind and you'll be able to see it. You'll be able to get it. And what I want to show you is this, for everything the Lord told them to put away, to put off in verse 5, the antithesis, the exact opposite of that is found listed beginning with verse 12 and going through verse 16. Let me show it to you. First of all, in verse 8, he tells us to put off anger. Now look in verses tw verse 12 
And he says, in its place, instead of anger, put on compassion and kindness. Now, let me ask you a question. You be honest with yourself. Think this through. Would it make any difference in your home? Would it make any difference in your workplace? Would it make any difference in your social life with friends? If every time you had a legitimate reason to be angry, guess what? That doesn't mean you have to be angry. It just means you have a reason to be angry. But now that we're in Christ, we have the power to make a choice. It's called the Christ life. It's in you. You have now have the power, the ability to say no to anger. And instead of being angry, express compassion and kindness. Would that make a difference in your life? Would that make a difference in the lives of people around you? Second thing in verse 8, we're told to put away or put to death is wrath. That's blowing your top, flipping your wig. And you may have a very legitimate reason. Someone may have done something horrible, said something horrible. You may have the, really the right to get angry and blow your top, but that doesn't mean you have to. You can choose instead of blowing your top, instead of being wrathful in verse 12, you can put on humility and gentleness. Would that make a difference in your life? Would that make a difference in the lives of people around you? The third thing in verse 8 that we're told to put away is malice. That's holding grudges, writing spiritual IOUs. But he says, instead of that, you have the choice to put on in verses 12 and 13, patience, forbearance, and forgiveness. Wow. You think that might make America great again? Relax, folks. Just don't get so uptight. Do you think that has the power to make America great again? If we would not hold grudges, but instead we would be patient with people, forbearing one another and forgiving one another. And then in verse 8, the, the fourth thing there is slander. In place of sand, slander, instead, in verse 14, put on love. Not just any kind of love. That's agape love. The love of God. The love of Christ. Self-giving love. The love that places others greater and more deserving than oneself. Would that make a difference? And then in verse 8, put off slander and put on love. In verse, finally, in verse 8, in the place of abusive speech or profanity, put on peace and thankfulness. What a difference that would be. And then in verse 9, in place of lying, put on teaching. In verse 16, teaching and admonishing the Word of God. 
One day Jesus was teaching his disciples and he told them a parable about a man out of whom an unclean spirit was cast. The Bible tells us that uh, Jesus said that spirit went across dry land searching for someone else to inhabit and couldn't find anyone else. And finally, that unclean spirit came back to that original individual and looked into his heart. And when he looked into that person's heart, he saw three things. He saw that his heart had been cleansed, garnished, that means put in order. But the third thing he saw about that person's heart is that it was empty. He hadn't replaced that unclean spirit with anything. And Jesus said when that unclean spirit saw that, that the man's heart was empty, he went and found seven more fierce unclean spirits than himself. And all of them re-inhabited the man. And Jesus said the last state of the man was worse than the first. It's important, it's critical to put off the old man, but it's vital to put on the virtues of the new life. Two words in the Bible that a lot of people stumble over. I've never claimed to be a theologian, but I want to give you a, a layman's definition, an easily remembered definition of those two words. The first word is justification. The second is sanctification. Justification is simply this, accepting the truth by faith. When we accept the truth that Christ died for sinners, just as the song says, he paid it all. The just suffered for the unjust that he might bring us to God. But sanctification, whereas justification is uh, accepting the truth by faith, sanctification is applying the truth by faith. One is taking the death side of Jesus, the other is taking the life side, the resurrection side. He died for us, but he came to live his life in us. The same one who gave his life and died for us is the one who now lives in us. That simply means that the life of walking by faith is exactly that. It's a life of faith. Now one thing that some of you may not know, may not understand is this. In the New Testament, the, same, the word for faith, faith is a noun. But in the original language of the writing of the New Testament, the, there's a verb form of faith. But whenever it's translated over into our English language, there is no verb form of faith. And so when they translated the New Testament over in, from Greek to English, the word believe was chosen for the verbal found, uh, verbal word of faith. 
Now, that's fine and good, but that brings with it a challenge because many people think of that word believe as merely an intellectual matter. But remember what the Bible says in the book of James. The demons believe and tremble. Believing in the New Testament word means far more than intellectually. It means that much, but it means something deeper. In fact, if you go to a concordance and you look up a, the, that word believe, that word faith, it comes with this threefold definition. To trust in, to cling to, to rely on. To trust in the death of Jesus that he paid it all. That he took our punishment for his sins. First John 2, 2 says he is the propitiation for our sins. That word propitiate means to satisfy. He's, Jesus satisfied every demand of heaven for the payment of sin. And it goes on to say, and not just for our sins only, but also for the sins of the whole world. Now hold on, that doesn't mean everybody gets saved. What it does mean is this. He paid the price for everyone and for those who believe they receive what he paid for. So to trust in Jesus is to trust that when he died, he died for us. He died for sinners. It also means to cling to. That word simply means that you rely on him. One of the first things when you talk to someone who's lost about becoming a Christian, oftentimes you hear something like this, I don't want to be a, a, a hypocrite. I don't want to start something not be able to finish out. Listen to me, folks. The same way you get saved is the same way you stay right with God, and that is clinging to him. You get justified by his death. You get sanctified by his life in you, Christ in you, the hope of glory. And then the third part of that definition, to trust in, to cling to, to rely on, and that is to rely on his truthfulness. Folks, you can trust Jesus. You can trust Jesus. The Bible says that God cannot lie. It's not that he will not lie. It's that he, his being will not allow him to lie. God cannot lie. And the question for every one of us tonight is this. It begins, it starts with this. Have you ever believed on the Lord Jesus Christ recognizing that believing in Him means you trust in Him, you cling to Him, you rely on Him. Because you can never walk the highway of holiness until you're in Him. Thank you again for listening to our broadcast. To learn more about First Baptist Church in Keller, Texas, or to hear more sermons by Pastor Keith and our staff, visit us online at fbckeller.org.